Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Comfort and Critique, The Prophet Joel in a Plague of Locusts. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 27, 2013. Last spring, some 30 billion cicadas that were born in 1996 emerged after 17 years buried in the earth. It was like the locust from this week's prophet Joel. Just imagine what ancient people in an agrarian economy would have thought. What the locust swarm has left, writes Joel, the great locusts have eaten. What a dreadful day. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. The prophet Joel makes only a brief appearance in the biblical drama, and even then he's shrouded in obscurity. All that we know about him comes from his little micro-prophecy, but that's next to nothing since the entire book takes only about five minutes to read. His name means Yahweh is God. He says he's the son of Pethuel, but that's no help since we know nothing about his father. His several references to the temple lead some readers to think that Joel lived in Jerusalem, but that's only conjecture. And the time of his prophecy is murky, with scholars suggesting dates as early as 835 BC and as late as 200 BC. Nonetheless, Joel is a good example of the dual role that prophets played in the history of Israel. First, Joel did more foretelling about the present than foretelling about the future. The business of the prophets was more prognosis than prediction. Prophets discerned with unusual clarity the significance of current events and the circumstances of God's people. Based upon their diagnosis, they spoke a word from God to provoke his people to change. By speaking God's word to our world, prophets call us to radical transformation. Joel takes an everyday occurrence and interprets it as an act of God. He writes, The locust plague that we are now experiencing is an act of divine judgment calling us to repentance, renewal, and redemption. He describes a locust plague that devastated the land, the economy, and the people. Bark was stripped from trees, food vanished, seeds shriveled, granaries stood empty, cattle moaned from hunger and thirst, and streams evaporated into dry creek beds. With memories of the divine plagues of Moses, Joel interprets this natural disaster as a spiritual sign. He calls it a day of the Lord, a phrase he uses six times. Israel, he says, should understand the plague as a divine invitation to turn to Yahweh for redemption. But the prophets did more than foretell God's judgment. They cast a positive vision for the people of God. The rains will return. 
The vats will overflow with new wine. The threshing floor once again will be filled with grain. Your old men shall dream dreams, said Joel. Your young men will see visions. In addition to prophetic critique, the prophets offered pastoral comfort. They kept the dreams of God's people and his kingdom alive in times of disaster and discouragement. Walter Brueggemann captures this dual role of the prophets nicely when he says that the prophets both criticized and energized. On the one hand, they disturbed the status quo. They questioned the reigning order of things. They viewed the normal state of affairs in a different light and advocated a new way of seeing and living, personally, socially, spiritually, economically, politically, in short, in every dimension of life. The prophets afflicted the comfortable and the complacent. But they also comforted the afflicted. They intended, says Brueggemann, to generate hope, affirm identity, and create a new future. They offered more than a negative critique. They were also about positive affirmation and encouragement. This is especially evident when Israel was destroyed by the pagan nations of Assyria and Babylon. How could that happen? Didn't it suggest the failure of God's plan, the abandonment of his people? When Israel was in exile, feeling forgotten by Yahweh, the prophets consoled them with hope. Do not be afraid, writes Joel. If you've ever felt despair over a hopeless situation, the prophets have a word for you. Yes, they dished out the vinegar, but they also gave us honey for the heart. Prophetic critique demands radical change, as in now. Wake up, writes Joel. Weep, wail, blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Don't wait another day. Prophetic critique calls for the question. It is rightly impatient for change. Pastoral comfort is different. It invites us to patient endurance. When we witness what the psalmist this week calls the turmoil of the nations, Psalm 65, 7, Think of Congo and Syria, Egypt and Iraq. Nonetheless, we still believe that God is the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. Despite all that we know in the appearance of outward events, keep waiting, says the psalmist, for him to hear our prayers, answer us with awesome deeds, and still the roaring of the seas. Agitation for change and quiet persistence make for awkward bedfellows, but we need both. Consider these two examples. A few months ago, this past August 28th, the United States celebrated the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech and the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. 
The seminal moment in history reflected the endurance of blacks who had suffered 400 years of racism and the agitation for change on the part of King and many thousands of ordinary citizens. The dream was kept alive by both critique and comfort. Just two weeks before that national celebration, the movie The Butler was released. Based on the real life of Eugene Allen, it tells the story of Cecil Gaines, a butler in the White House who served eight presidents from 1952 to 1986. Cecil and his wife Gloria find themselves in the maelstrom of America's civil rights movement, albeit from an unusual vantage point. Cecil's job description requires him to be invisible when he enters a room. He earned only 40% of what his white colleagues did. But with quiet dignity, he did his job. He didn't rock the boat. He made the best of a bad situation. And as a trusted butler, presidents asked his advice. Where else could they have spoken to an ordinary black citizen? Late in Cecil's tenure, Reagan invited him to a state dinner not as a lowly butler, but as an honored guest. And then in 2008, he weeps to see Barack Obama elected president. But none of that was good enough for Cecil's son. He thought his dad was a subservient sellout. The son joins the civil rights movement, agitates for change, is arrested and jailed, and becomes increasingly radicalized. Father and son become alienated from each other. But in the end, they come to respect each other. Cecil marches with his son. His son honors his father's service as a domestic servant. Mary Poles notes how the movie is built on stereotypes. Cecil is the good Negro of the 1960s. His son is the angry black man of the 1960s. But that's the conflict and tension that blacks faced. King was criticized by both conservatives and radicals. There were no easy answers. But this much is clear. The church and the world need both prophetic critique that demands change and pastoral comfort on the long road of endurance. This week we have a special book review. The title is To Save Everything, Click Here, The Folly of Technological Solutionism. The author is Yevgeny Morozov, New York Public Affairs, 2013, 432 pages. This is a guest book review by John Mark Agosta, who earned his PhD at Stanford University in computer science. This book, the author's second, picks a fight with the greed and self-adulation in Silicon Valley culture that would justify any technological advance as an unmitigated good and gift to humanity. To identify his target, 
Morozov coins the term solutionism as the rampant trend of proponents of internet technology to identify things in society that they find undesirable as problems to be fixed by placing efficiency above all else and putting aside the harder questions that the consequences of technology raise. Morozov disdains the use of, quote-unquote, the Internet, claiming it has become a debased and meaningless banner for the promotion of questionable products whose value is nothing more than a ticket in the IPO lottery for startups. I should say first that in the interest of full disclosure, by profession as a data scientist, I am guilty in Morozov's eyes by promoting the benefits of analysis of big data that he sees as part of the problem. I spend efforts analyzing personal data, much of it the massive newly emerging streams generated by individuals' cars, especially my own, being one of the so-called quote-unquote quantified selves that he derides. I'm one source of the technology and the inspiration that drives the excesses he takes to task in his book. A recent rising star, Morozov is well known for his columns and blog posts. He contributes regularly to Slate.com. With his critical view of ideas coming out of Silicon Valley, his reach is encyclopedic, and only a token of it can be touched upon in this review. This book could well spawn several other books to respond to his critique, which would be a desirable and useful discussion to see. Initially, Morozov sounds like yet another technophobe by highlighting the unintended effects and social inequities overlooked by the more enthusiastic cheerleaders for the latest high-tech product. Indicative of his approach, among the numerous cases he goes after is a recent startup called Impermium.com that promises to remove offensive and unacceptable content posted on a company's website. As he fears, restriction of the web to exclusively anodyne content could well eliminate important opinions and might well be an early causality. Clearly, the endless stream of claims made by startups offer vast opportunities for poking fun. But of all the careful thinkers in the field, one would think he'd be the last to be taken in by hype that accompanies startups pitching their businesses. But demolishing such overdone sales claims makes for some entertaining laughs, if less than enlightening reading. Borrowing from his Russian background, Morozov his hyperbolic style savages his opponents by suggesting juxtapositions that places them in as bad as light as possible. If you can stand the rhetoric, you realize that his book is not an anti-technology diatribe per se, but is about the claims made of its world-transforming inevitable power. His argument is with the purveyors of the technology who justify their claims with the ill-defined cyberwigged future of the Internet. And please do read the authors that he takes to task for yourself, if, instead of his acerbic critique, you want a fair view of what they truly think. He takes arms against a veritable catalog of Internet researchers like Larry Lessig, Kevin Kelly, Jonathan Zittrain, along with Eric Schmidt, Esther Dyson, Stephen Wolfram, 
Ray Kurzweil, Jeff Bezos, any of the admirers of Steve Jobs, and any speakers who's distilled their opinions to fit within the 18-minute duration of a TED Talk. Characteristically, he credits Lessig with claiming that the internet is like a force of nature, when in fact Lessig deserves to be credited with identifying the utter malleability of the internet. In fact, Lessig's argument in his book Code is just the opposite and agreeable with Morozov's sentiments rather than with the technological determinism that Morozov pins on him. While the mud gets slung back and forth by Morozov and his self-envisioned miscreants of Silicon Valley, perhaps I can keep my head down and get some valuable work done. In threshing the wheat from the chaff among the uses of the vast amount of data, along with its currency and the computing power of clusters of machines to process it. For insight into what technology in the internet trenches is that fans the flames of this debate, I recommend the book by Nate Silver. It's insightful and readable and called Signal and the Noise. It's a book about forecasting and how it has been transformed by technology. Not to get too much off topic of this review, the point of Silver's book is the challenge of getting through the randomness of most data. Not appreciated in the public debate is how much the technology depends on what the statistical analysis can and cannot recover, and how much the analysis deals solely with anonymous statistical analysis. Only at the very initial and final steps having actual names attached to it. I suggest starting Morozov's book with the postscript and working your way backwards, since the most thoughtful discussion occupies the end of each chapter. Once the author has burned himself out entertaining us with clever put-downs across the entire technological spectrum. A considerate reading, though, reveals a sensitive view of the complexity of technology's social, political, and moral aspects that technology proponents and like-minded commentators run roughshod over in their unquestioning enthusiasm for the supposed beneficence of internet solutionism. Morozov deals, details cases why technical innovation, ignorant of the social norms it imposes, can unwittingly hinder social progress by enforcing entrenched, undesirable social practices. To illustrate, such might be the case with statistical social network tracking or face recognition algorithms that unknowingly duplicate racial profiling. Morozov has to dig deep to find good examples of the moral quandaries that current applications of technology blithely ignore. An outstanding example is the new turnstiles in the New York City subway that physically prevent entry without valid payment. Unlike the honor system characteristic of many European public transportations, such as Berlin's, the moral choice a system like Berlin's allows and even requires is valuable, and arguably necessary in fringe circumstances when entry, as in rescue or refuge, would be better left to a question of judgment rather than a mechanical device. The oversimplification by enforcing choices based on just maximizing efficiency removes the moral need for deliberation and reduces choice.
If the good is supposedly built into the technology, does that make us possibly less morally aware? Much as reliance on ubiquitous GPS on our smartphones dulls our innate sense of direction? Not every intricate facet of our social lives is a problem to be overcome by replacement with the use of novel application conceived with hardwired values of right and wrong. Morozov's book is worth a read for its revealing exploration of how idolatry in any simplistic notion of good versus bad goes wrong. In this case, the uncritical pursuit of the numerous technical opportunities offered by the current fad in internet innovations, which as they mature are oblivious to the serious role they now play in the future of society. The title of the book again, To Save Everything, Click Here, The Folly of Technological Solutionism. The author is Yevgeny Morozov. This was a guest book review by John Mark Agosta. For film this week, we review The Butler from the year 2013. And this historical drama, based on a true story, director Lee Daniels tells the story of Cecil Gaines, played by Forrest Whitaker, a butler in the White House who served eight presidents from 1952 to 1986. The movie is based on the real life of Eugene Allen. Of course, there are the inevitable questions about what's true and what's fiction, but we can be sure that real life for blacks during this period was far worse than any cinematic version. Cecil and his wife, Gloria, played by Oprah Winfrey, find their flame in the maelstrom of America's civil rights movement, albeit from an unusual vantage point. Cecil's son thinks Dad is a subservient sellout, a passive servant at the White House who earned 40% less than whites there, and whose job description required him to be invisible. For his part, Cecil ostracizes his son when he joins the civil rights subversives. There were no easy answers for blacks in those days. Daniels's film will draw comparisons with his previous controversial film, Precious, from the year 2009, and then also the film The Help from 2011. Once again, Lee Daniels, the butler. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a Celtic poem or prayer called A Prayer at Dressing, a morning prayer for the new day. Bless to me, O God, my soul and my body. Bless to me, O God, my belief and my condition. Bless to me, O God, my heart and my speech. And bless to me, O God, the handling of my hand. Strength and busyness of mourning, habit and temper of modesty, force and wisdom of thought, 
in thine own path, O God of virtues, till I go to sleep this night. Thine own path, O God of virtues, till I go to sleep this night. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 27th, 2013. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.